and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is the third of a special series of podcasts trying to make sense of what Europe can do in Trump's world. This week we are looking at the European Security Order. This is being changed in three fundamental ways. Firstly, Donald Trump has announced a mega reset of American policies towards Russia. And uh, this is going to have potentially profound implications, not just for the bilateral relationship between these two superpowers, but also American priorities in wider Europe and on other global issues. Secondly, the future of NATO is being raised as never before. NATO is obsolete, we are told, and many European countries are worrying about what that means for their security. And thirdly, the relationship with Turkey could also go through a profound change. There seems to be a general openness to building relations with strong men and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is uh, one of that breed of characters who seem to be quite attractive for for Trump as well as uh, being attracted to Trump. To help us make sense of these big questions we have a star set of guests. First up is Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow on our Wider Europe program. He's an expert on Russia and has been thinking a lot about the future of US-Russia relations in this new era. Second up is Vesela Chernova, who is ECFR's director of programs, a senior policy fellow, and is joining us from Sofia. And finally... We have Asla Aydin Tashbash also returning to the podcast, our senior policy fellow who is based in Istanbul and can give us some insight into the Turkish dimension. What I think makes this particularly interesting is the interplay between these different questions. So as in the other ones, we will uh, look at them separately, but also together. And Kadri, why don't you start and tell us what we can expect from this, uh, the, the reset of the reset Indeed, that's how some people call it. And there is wide expectation that Putin and Trump will make their first contact very soon. And we can also possibly expect a summit in not too distant a future. Uh, However, I I think that uh, sort of reset of resets of a grand bargain that these contacts are supposed to lead to is often discussed in somewhat primitive geopolitical terms in the media. Uh, people think of things that Putin can give to Trump and that Putin might want from Trump. Um, in my view, what Russia actually wants from the United States and has been wanting all along is something much more complicated. I think Russia really wants uh, to establish some sorts of rules of the game, uh, some rules and taboos. Uh, they want to outlaw some of the uh, principles that have been present in international politics in recent decades, uh, such as responsibility to protect, right of countries to join alliances if they qualify, uh, humanitarian interventions, regime changes, and and so forth. And they want really to do it in in a sustainable um, manner. Many people say that Russia sees the world in Hobbesian terms as a place where everyone fights with everyone. 
I think that is right only up to a point. Russia definitely has a sort of zero-sum mindset, although even that is not absolute. But when it comes to the sort of anarchic aspect of Hobbesian world, anarchic struggle, uh, lawless struggle of all against all, then I don't see that as seeing in Russia's interests at all. And I don't think Moscow sees it either. Russia, regardless of its skillful foreign policy of recent years, is still an aging power. And they actually are in need of rule-based world in order to sustain themselves vis-a-vis vigorous competitors. So they just want different rules, the, the, the law of the jungle rather than the, the kind of European postmodern idea. Exactly. I think they want rules. And I think that is something that Americans do not necessarily understand. And you can already see how Trump's proposal that was spelled out uh, a short while ago, that America could offer um, Russia sanctions relief in exchange of uh, nuclear disarmament, that has created quite some confusion in Russia because sanctions have to do with Ukraine and Crimea. And Russia, of course, wants to get rid of sanctions. But I think Russia wants Ukraine issues settled. They want to have uh, their way politically, not just um, sanctions relief uh, without political um, lessons learned. And nuclear basket is something totally different. So I think it's actually a dilemma for Russia, because on the one hand, they of course want to get rid short-term goods from the United States. That will make their life a lot easier. But on the other hand, uh, their strategic game is diff- definitely uh, different rules. And, and these two might not be very well compatible. So what do you think, um, and I, I want to then go to, to Vesla to find out how she thinks Europeans are going to react to it, but what do you think is actually going to happen in terms of the various things that were said during the campaign? Because at, at some point, uh, Donald Trump said that Crimea had always been part of Russia and that we should recognise it as part of Russia, which would be quite a big change. Uh, you mentioned the sanctions relief as as an, another kind of set of issues, and we know that Rex Tillerson, the the future Secretary of State, has, has been very critical of the the sanctions regimes. Um, what? Uh, and then there has also been talk about working together against uh, against ISIS, and uh, you know, obviously. Um, Donald Trump is much less in favour of getting rid of Assad than the Obama administration was. But what what do you think the different elements of the new relationship could actually be? And and do you think that they might recognise Crimea's annexation? Well, that's a million dollar question. No, I I don't think they will recognise Crimea just like that. If you follow interviews of people who are likely to have some impact on Russia policy... Um, there has been some talk about legalizing the situation of Crimea, that, and that would, in this case, involve either a new referendum, uh, big payouts from Russia to Ukraine, and, and so forth. And even so, it's, it's a fairly big if. I think questions like Ukraine will be a big battleground in American politics, because different people will have very different opinions, and also people inside the administration Uh, What is most likely uh, to happen of the things you mentioned, I think indeed Syria, because I I think um, Russia has managed to impose its solution on Syria on everyone else. And to come up with policy that demands Assad to go 
is probably not very viable at the moment. So I I think Syria is 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 one of the issues where you could see some as the genuine meeting of, of, of minds and common policy emerging. So, Vesela, what do you think will happen to Europeans if you get this kind of rapprochement over Syria coupled with sanctions relief? First of all, I have never found a satisfactory answer to the question, what is that the Russians can really give to Trump? Because we know what Trump can give to Russians, right? Uh, be it a uh, discussion about Eastern Ukraine, Minsk and sanctions, uh, be it a discussion about um, security and NATO, but what is that the other side could offer? And there um, you have all these uh, fears that emerge, um, especially in the countries that border Russia, um, the Central and Eastern Europeans, um, who start uh, coming up with different options, none of which, however, uh, in my view, is, uh, is really satisfactory. I think uh, Europeans have right to fear that their security is going to be uh, jeopardized in the new situation, especially the Nordics and the Northeastern Europeans. Uh, some of them are not members of NATO, and that makes um, things uh, even uh, even worse. Uh, but uh, but in general, I think the whole discussion about U.S. and Russia and what Europe has to do with it uh, will have to deal with this issue. Maybe Kadri can step in uh, for a second. Yeah, well, Kadri, apparently you've got a, a hotline to to the Kremlin so maybe you can tell us what they can give no I um, yes I uh, <clears throat> I think I have an answer to that and the answer is nothing and they don't think they need to give anything because from Russia's point of view um, giving up on the liberal idealistic world order is a natural thing to do it is basically America giving up on its delusions and starting to see the world as it is and Russia doesn't think it needs to give anything uh, to reward America for coming to its senses. But not to not for coming to its senses, but you know, when when Bush was elected, Russia was quite helpful in terms of giving access to Central Asian bases, the war against Afghanistan. I mean, Putin understands there has to be transactional bits to the relationship, so there must be some little bits and bobs that uh, he will offer up. No. Not, not in the same way anymore. I don't think so. I, I think you pointed to the right moment in time uh, when Bush came to power. Then, indeed, uh, Russia thought about it as transactional thing and tried to offer its concessions, hoping to get something in return, which never materialized because Bush thought that Russia was only being guided by its interests and values that were common with the United States. And so did the natural thing. So now, in a way, tables are turned. America is doing the natural thing and doesn't need to be paid back. That said, of course, and Russia will offer lots of flattery, nice gestures, maybe some concessions here and there, but nothing substantial. They do not think they need to compromise in world order terms. Okay. So, um, Vesla, we'll go back to you. So now that we've got a slightly better idea of, of the fact 
that Russia's not going to offer very much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? How do you think Europeans are going to cope with this with reset of the reset? Um, it's going to be tough. Europeans feel uh, left out in this. Uh, um, in a paradoxical way, the Obama administration's last actions, uh, uh, which made kind of the Russia issue um, a domestic issue for the American uh, politics, uh, whereby Democrats uh, are the hawks and the Republicans are the ones who want uh, rapprochement, has made it very difficult for uh, for Trump, in a way, not to be, not to uh, look for a deal. So now Europeans are convinced that there will be some kind of an attempted deal, and uh, and and feel left out, feel that they need to regroup. And uh, some of them already, I think, are making advances uh, to. Um, at least to have their own path uh, towards uh, Kremlin. But there, Vesa, there, I think there are at least two particular dimensions. One is the question of uh, sanctions, because we know that a third of EU member states didn't like sanctions anyway. And if François Fillon wins the American, uh, sorry, the French presidency or or, or Le Pen. Um, that will uh, empower the anti-sanctions brigade even further. And then the other angle is the whole question of NATO and um, uh, the security guarantees. But maybe start with sanctions. Well, on sanctions, I think the consensus uh, is uh, going to be um, more and more under pressure. We know that the next round of uh, renewing sanctions is due in June, but uh, I think uh, basically after the French elections, the latest, we will see a review of the whole sanctions policy, which means mid-end of May, uh, we may already see a totally new approach to, to the issue. Uh, frankly, it will all depend also on what kind of situation Europe will be in, how much energy will the Germans want to invest in keeping the consensus uh, um, at EU level. Right now, the Germans are also probably preparing a plan B. What, um, what does that look like? I think it will look, uh, it will be some something that would probably envisage uh, going closer to the Trump administration on uh, on the deal with Russia, and uh, and this is going to be very interesting to watch. So maybe we can switch to to the NATO thing as well. Maybe Asla can tell us how the NATO discussion looks from Turkey, because we haven't heard that much about how Turkey's thinking about its role in European security as these big things change. We've seen countries like the UK, for example, sending troops to, um, to to Poland, to various Baltic countries in order to curry favour with them apart from the, uh, as part of the Brexit negotiations, but also because people are worried about the US pulling out. But how does it look from Turkey, the future of NATO? Well, Turkey, Turkey is primarily thinking of its own security market at this point and not necessarily within the NATO context. There's very much a focus in terms of 
what Turkey will do militarily in Syria and Iraq. And of course, last year, when Turkey had a, after Turkey had a falling out with Russia, there was a renewed interest in NATO and NATO affairs and sort of Black Sea issues, etc. But the coup has pretty much killed that spirit. Uh, there are issues with NATO in terms of NATO officers that have defected, that Turkey believes are part of the military coup effort uh, attempt in, uh, here in July, and they have uh, taken refuge or are seeking political asylum. So there's ongoing issues. And secondly, the entire sort of new uh, deal with Russia is necessarily making NATO issues a secondary concern. There is now a, a, a more than a rapprochement, a type of the beginnings of uh, intense cooperation in military and intelligence affairs, particularly in Syria and Iraq. And I think NATO is almost second, and European security certainly is almost secondary. So they make a distinction between Trump and NATO. So what do they, they make? They lie. They make a distinction between Trump and NATO. Very much so. What? So what do they? If they don't like NATO, but they do like Trump, why do they like Trump? What do they hope for from Trump? Well, um, they like Trump first of all. I mean, I think there is now this sense that AKP is anti-establishment. President Erdogan has been anti-establishment. Trump is anti-establishment. We're sort of part of the same strain of global sort of. Uh, global revolt against the elite kind of a spirit that I see in uh, media, particularly uh, media close to the government. So stylistically, they think Trump is sort of not that far from Erdogan. And uh, I think several things. There's almost a laundry list of things Turkey wants from Trump and thinks that maybe perhaps it's possible to uh, achieve these ends. First of all, uh, they, they want U.S. support for Syrian Kurds to stop. Very clear on that. Do not work with YPG, that is to say the militant Syrian Kurdish group. Don't work with them. And uh, we're happy to do more, uh, take on more of the burden in, in the fight against ISIS, but not the Kurds. And uh, I think, uh, secondly, they don't want human rights and uh, civil rights issues on the table at the forefront of the Turkish-American dialogue. And they certainly, more important than everything else, they certainly want to see if Trump would be more helpful in terms of extraditing Fethullah Gulen, whom uh, the government sees as the uh, main culprit of the uh, coup attempt and uh, who currently lives in Pennsylvania. They've gotten some, some signals from the Trump team particularly General Flynn, the national security advisor, that the Trump administration could be tougher on Gulen himself and the Gulenist groups uh, in the states and sort of various foundations and schools and charter schools, etc. But of course, you know, uh, in terms of the other issue that's very important to uh, the Turkish government here, that is to say Syrian Kurds, signals have been mixed. Uh, there is a continuity within Pentagon and uh, bureaucracy, of course. And American officials do underline the fact that Syrian Kurds are very effective in the fight against ISIS and, more imminently, in the fight uh, against ISIS in Raqqa. 
So I think that uh, the jury is still out, and the, the, what U.S. does with Fethullah Gulen and uh, with Syrian Kurds is pretty much going to determine the tone in relations. I have to say, under the last couple of months of the Obama administration, relations have been at their worst. At their worst, that I, I do not recall a period in which there was so much anti-Americanism and sort of open blaming of United States and Washington for Turkey's own problems and the coup and whatnot. And there is now a, a sense of a goodwill that's coming from government circles extended to Trump. But the test will really be what Trump administration does with YPG, the Syrian Kurds, and Fethullah Gulen. I think all in all, though, I have to say, uh, deep at heart, uh, the Turkish security establishment, as well as the sort of bureaucracy, would actually prefer, once again, uh, having U.S. as a partner in key issues and in this region, as opposed to having to live with Russia and having to depend on Russia for all their defense and security needs and regional affairs. That is not a place Turkey has ever been in. And they understand that it's, you know, little by little also in these sort of uh, peace talks with Syrians, etc., they understand that there are costs associated with this, despite the sort of, you know, enthusiasm about Putin and the kind of world order that he's promising, the type of governance, etc., there's also a sense when I talk to people that it's not really good to be entirely dependent on Russia on all things Middle Eastern. So from what Asla's saying, it's all about the Middle East for, for Turkey, which does take us back to where we kind of started, which is sort of Europeans feeling much more alone with their own security problems in, in the Eastern and the European space. Vesla, what do you think that they're actually going to do in those circumstances? Well, if Turkey, in a way, freezes its NATO membership, which is basically what Asla has described, um, and we have a U.S. which is not, not engaging, which is not willing to, to work with allies, then uh, Europe is indeed uh, in a very uh, tricky situation for the first time. Uh, in 70 years. We have uh, the Balkans, which are very volatile in terms of uh, their own security, but also as a gate uh, towards um, an even more unsettled world to the south. Um, we have, of course, um, Russia and um, the threats around uh, Europe that are not only staying, but they're, uh, they're becoming uh, more and more diverse. So um, Europe's internal problems, in a way, may become really kind of uh, less important if the feeling of threat, of external threat, uh, becomes uh, very big. So, you know, we will see whether the talk about common European security is going to really gain a momentum, whether European societies will be willing to invest uh, their um, taxpayer money in uh, European defense. This is something that uh, should happen in the next uh, months. And of course, we will see what kind of Europe we will have uh, after the series of elections. But uh, I really uh, kind of hope that there is enough instinct left uh, in Europe uh, to uh, stay together in these very unsettled times. 
Okay, well, that brings this podcast to an end. We have one more thing to do, which is the the bookshelf segment. Um, So, Vesla, what's on your bookshelf? I am intending to read this book by Philip Roth, which he apparently wrote in 2004, and which many uh, people think uh, is actually about Trump, the plot against America. But I haven't started yet, so I'll have to report it another podcast. Okay, what about you, Asla? Well, I'm reading a book on meditation, uh, by, which is called 10% Happier by an ABC reporter uh, and a Good Morning America host, who basically has devoted a whole lot of time in this sort of crazy mess in politics and news and 24-7 news cycle. He's devoted... He's invested time in learning meditation and basically says it doesn't unlock it's, it doesn't unlock the mystery to life, but it makes you a little bit happier, ten percent, and you know, ten percent is not bad. Okay, what about you, Kadri? Well, I am in fact looking for uh, good reading recommendations on what is happening in Western societies these days. It's become evident that foreign policy and the domestic policy are linked in in more ways than one Uh, and I feel that us foreign policy experts need to educate ourselves a lot more on the internal workings of the societies and everything that influences that. So anything good and relevant that anyone among our listeners has come across would be very welcome. Okay, and as for myself, I have just started one of the most exciting books I've seen for ages. I was very late in coming to the party, but it's called The Transformation of the World, uh, A Global History of the 19th Century by Jürgen Osterhammer, and it's a thousand pages long, and is an absolute... That's Merkel's favourite book, no? Yeah, apparently Angela Merkel read this book when she um, when she had a skiing accident a few years ago. And it is really a phenomenal piece of work. He basically looks at the world not in the way that we were taught at school through particular chronological chunks or through the history of particular countries, but he tries to really look at the whole world and breaks it up into some of the the big stories, uh, structural stories of the 19th century. So he looks at at migration and mobility, uh, imperialism and empire, at the birth of free trade. And it's both enormously ambitious in its scope, but he's got a kind of granularity to the discussion, to to the descriptions of these different things, which is very, very exciting. I, I can't, tell whether i'm going to have the stamina to read all thousand pages of it but i'm certainly looking forward to uh to dipping my way through it and it is a, it's a wonderful piece of work so that brings this uh podcast to an end if you've enjoyed it please do uh tweet about it uh write about it on ecfr's facebook page or on your own facebook page and give us a review and a ranking on iTunes, which I think is very important if you want other people to, to get access to the, the wonderful thoughts of, uh, of people who are on the world in 30 minutes. We are putting links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Kadri Leek, Vesla Chanova, Asla Aydin Tashbash and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Bolin Goemi. Mm-hmm.